You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Our guest today is our longtime reporter, Jason DeRussia, co-anchor of WCCO This Morning and WCCO Mid-Morning. Some of you may already know him as the food reporter, producing DeRussia Eats. Shonda and Jason discuss his career as a news reporter and the challenges today's media has faced in the wake of George Floyd's murder and throughout the pandemic. And after hearing Shonda and Jason discuss about journalism, presenting facts, and just the thought process of becoming a reporter, I have this new profound appreciation for journalism. Let's get right into it. And I hope you enjoy the show. I remember watching the uprising in Tiananmen Square, and I'm sitting in my kind of middle-class, suburban Chicago living room, watching these correspondents. And, you know, back when the uprising happened in Tiananmen Square, you didn't have, you know, cell phone cameras or any of the stuff we have now. So it was just a, a reporter on a satellite phone and live coverage. And you could see the pictures, but you never really saw the reporter. And she, I just knew I was watching history as it was happening. I was watching it unfold. And as someone who loved history and loved politics, but didn't necessarily want to go into that, um, I was really drawn to this idea of watching history as it as it unfolds. And as a kid, like I had this Mr. Microphone toy that like you could hook into a, a radio. So like you'd tune your radio to 87.9 or something. And I could, you know, I could talk into the Mr. Microphone thing <laughs> and I would interview kids on the playground. And I'm sure it's just, you know, all this stuff that I thought made me cool, like could not have made me dorkier, right? You're like, you're the morning announcement guy at your high school, like not good, like PA announcer at baseball games, like all of this sort of stuff. But my high school had a radio station. So we had an operating on the air FM radio station and we would do play-by-play of the basketball games and the football games and the baseball because it wasn't on TV like all of that stuff is now. Now all that stuff is a moneymaker, right? Like all high school sports. But back then, the only way you could get it was from the, the you know, couple of pimply-faced idiots who were doing the broadcast on the high school radio station. That's so. awesome. We had one at our school, too. I went to North High School, and um, there was a radio station there as well which I thought was pretty awesome. It I was actually awesome, think it, right? Well, look, I actually think it was more awesome now. Like when I was in school, I kind of didn't really pay attention to those kids. <laughs> right. Well, right. Yeah. And so <laughs> and they I didn't was pay wondering. attention to me, right? Like I was in some math and <laughs> science and technology. I was like yeah. geeking out on the other side of the building. So. Yeah. Like we all had our stuff we geeked out about, right? Which is part of like why it's so important to make sure that like you have a variety of things so different kids can find whatever their bit is. And I was a great student, like, you know, straight A, super type A student, but like I was drawn to this. And so my parents were always, my parents were very supportive, but they were always kind of bringing up other things that you would expect like a straight A student should maybe be doing instead of going into journalism. So it's like, well, are you sure you don't want to go to law school? Or have you thought about being a doctor or what about this? And I'm like, no, like, I think this is what I want to do. Yeah, I think I found it. Yeah. So one of the, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to talk to you, Jason. But one of them was, you know, speaking of, of living in moments of, of history uh, making over the last 18 months or so, I was watching the trial. There were times that I could really be into it and times that I had to protect my heart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I watched you with the coverage and I was thinking often about how that might be shaping you as a reporter, as a journalist, as a person. I'm curious if it has, or do you try to find ways to separate yourself from the emotion? Mm-hmm. You know, like how, like, I just, I'm just want to know, like, how does that impact you? You know, there are a couple major stories in the Twin Cities that will 
for will and have forever changed me. And one is the collapse of the 35W bridge. Mm. And the second is the murder of George Floyd. Um, and the trial itself for me was much less emotionally draining and exhausting than the the kind of six days in the aftermath of kind of the feelings that I think we all went through uh, after watching a, a man die on video. And, you know, I've been a reporter for a long time, for 25 years now, and I've seen all of the things, but that was something that um, is, you know, it's impossible to see that and not be affected by it. And even though you know as a reporter those sorts of things, if not that exact thing, but those sorts of things happen, but it's just different when you see it. It just is like, even though you know in your mind logically, you know, and that this happened, it was different to see it. And we saw it in the moments after it happened, right? So covering the trial, I tried very intentionally to go at it like a juror, to try to wipe my mind of everything that I thought about the case. And I will say going into it, you have kind of these maybe logical, legal thoughts about it, where you look at the charges and you look at the um, you look at the events and you look at what we know and what we maybe can't know, and you look at what you infer. And so you have these ideas. But when the trial started, I really wanted to treat it like a juror. So I would approach, you know, and I know like no one believes it when jurors say like, oh, I, I never saw the video or I sort of know about this, but I really don't. But I've covered enough trials and jurors, you know, people have lives. And even though there are stories that a lot of us get really immersed in and you think like, how is it possible that you wouldn't have seen some of this stuff? Sometimes people are protecting themselves and intentionally don't want to see it. And yeah. sometimes people just sort of create their own life where they're busy with their own life and they sort of live in that bubble. And I think this jury, this jury had a lot of that, you know, but so that was my approach to try to protect myself at the end of watching. There were a couple days that were very emotionally challenging because I'm sure they were emotionally challenging for the jurors, yeah. but there was one day of testimony where we watched body camera after body camera from the officers and the cumulative effect of that was tough. It was really tough. Um, I, I suppose if I stop reacting to these things as a human and just are looking at it logically, um, then I know it's probably time to hang it up and find a different line of work. Yeah. You know, you can still be objective about the facts and present the facts in an objective manner, but still be a human being who has these sorts of feelings and reactions. I'm not judging whether or not someone is guilty of murder. If I watch a video and think, how, how did this happen? How did, how, how was there never a moment where Derek Chauvin checked on George Floyd? And you think like from a legal standpoint, I don't know how you feel about this, but if he had at any point checked on George Floyd, at any point, I think it's a much tougher conviction where you say like, well, he was, he was doing what he was taught to do. You could have more of a, a discussion about whether the, the training is flawed because you'd say, well, he was doing something that was a, you know, perhaps an acceptable hold, but he was showing compassion and concern for a human being. Yeah. But the fact that you visually never saw any evidence of that, I think, made the jury's decision sort of the obvious decision. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I did feel that. And um, I'm one that has not watched the full video um, because I just I just couldn't do it. I've seen enough to know yeah. um, that uh, watching the full video would be too much for me. But yeah. I do think that 
I'm going to prove to you I'm in charge, even if it means taking a life. There was something that was so just awful, right? Like to me, that's, that's not policing as a whole, right? That's a person who's a police officer who had some really horrible behavior, deadly behavior, aggressive behavior that um, had to exist before and would exist after if it's not stopped. That's how I saw it. Yeah. So I just, you know, I do, and I sit in a place around making sure that our, our systems, right. That's the work that I do. That's the work of the Minneapolis foundation and so many others in this community of making sure that we are investing in programs and initiatives and people that are concerned for others that need supports, right. That need opportunity that need investment in like, that is our work to make sure that these systems work for everyone. And so they only work for everyone if the collection of people that work in those systems have those same hearts and minds and goals in mind. And if they don't, it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of these fields that are public facing have some of these same dangers, right? So people have their opinions about politicians where if you have one crook who's an elected official, people can say like, bah, all politicians. In the media, if you have one hack who is not being fair or not listening to the community or always coming at it from one side, or maybe worse, right? Like maybe they're, you know, they're being influenced in some way. Ah, the media, they're the worst. And same with police officers, where you can look at it and objectively say, okay, this is one bad reporter or one bad politician or one bad foundation. You know, you have nonprofits, you have those issues as well. Uh, What's harder is when you examine and say, are we, are the systems like you bring up, are the systems you know, you're going to get a bad apple, right? Like you're never going to have a hundred percent great people in any field. But when you examine and say, are the systems set up in a way that they're actually making good people bad? Mm. Um, That's a societal issue, right? And you have to struggle with that and say, okay, yes, you still can believe that most police officers are great. And it's so hard because people think about their own life experience with law enforcement and then just apply that to the whole whole world. And it's not true. Like the way I get treated when I get pulled over and look, do, you know, is different than the way a, a black man of my same age and same height and same size would be treated. It's just objectively true. Like that's not, I, I think sometimes we, we feel like we have to fight about every single thing, but some things are obvious and we don't really need to fight about it. Right. Can we just accept that? Like statistically it's very clear. And then like open your eyes and try talking to anyone. Like, you know, I have a, Amazing coworker, Ray Jones. He's our overnight editor. He's worked at Channel 4 forever. Ray and I are about the same age. We're both dads. Ray's a, probably a slightly better dad than I am. <laughs> Ray, for a while, had a Cadillac and drove a Cadillac to work. And Ray said that he got pulled over probably 20 plus times driving to work because he's a big black guy in a Cadillac. So he had to be up to no good. Well, no, he was coming to work in the middle of the night, but he got, now he didn't get arrested. He didn't get beaten, nothing happened. But what is life like when that happens to you every day? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's 20, 30 times. You're like, that's absolutely unbelievable. I oh. drive to work in the middle of the night. Well, it's not unbelievable. We know it's true, right? It's, it's sort of disgusting. But I also drive to work in the middle of the night. No, I have been pulled over. Guy in a suit driving at three in the morning. Also probably, you know, officers will think like, well, he's probably drunk, which is not a ridiculous assumption. Why, how many guys are wearing a a suit at three in the morning? Uh, That said, like, I've probably been pulled over three times. In your life? Uh, No, I've been pulled over more than that. Sadly, I'm not a very good driver. 
So there's that. <laughs> Um, going to work three but times. going to work i've been uh, well going to work i've been pulled over i've only been pulled over once going to work i got pulled over once going to the airport at three in the morning but yeah just once going to work now ray's been working there longer than me i've been in, in the overnights i've only been doing it for eight years but i've been pulled over once and ray ray ultimately got rid of his car he's like i can't be driving in a in a cadillac and Jason, I had a Mustang 5.0 in my early 20s, and I got pulled over in that car so much, I had it less than a year, and I went and got a new car. And I'm a woman, yeah. and I was young. Yeah. Like, I just, I couldn't drive the car. I'm like, I just, I can't do it. Yeah. So I, why do people, like, not accept this? Why? I mean, it's it's so obvious, and the stories are told over and over. And you could have a debate, like, does it make sense to profile? Like, that's a fair discussion to have, but why are we having a discussion about whether there's profiling? Of course it's happening. So sometimes that's a little frustrating where you're like, if we can't even agree on things that are like clearly true, then how do we ever get to these systemic examinations and try to make things better? Uh, it's As a journalist, you struggle with that where you're like, part of why I do what I do is that I believe that people are open to new facts and new information. And when I share that stuff based on excellent reporting and a veteran team like that people will will take that information in and sometimes i worry that like people aren't even willing to take in the the new information that if it conflicts with their worldview yeah i mean you know you're talking about one bad actor or one bad nonprofit or one bad politician or you know bad officer and i grew up in north minneapolis the whole community of people that get stereotyped for sure. Right. And so I've talked about this often where, you know, part of part of my work in a way is that, you know, and, the, you know, there's books on it. Right. It's more than a single narrative. Hmm. And it's certainly not your narrative because you don't have the experience. And so right. whose narrative do you listen to? And I think that's part of hmm. why this podcast is important. Right. Because I remember being a kid and saying, you know, gosh, I should feel actually maybe really less fortunate about my life. <laughs> you know, like maybe I should be scared or maybe I need someone to come and infuse something so I don't end up in this system or that system. Like yeah. there's so many people coming in with assertions about a community as a whole place yeah. with a single narrative. And it's and it so disturbing to me. Yeah. And they've probably never been to this, to any of these neighborhoods, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes it's decision makers, right? When you look at kind of the state and you say, all right, you, you guys are voting on things that affect this area and you have an idea about it. Like, have, have you ever, have you been there? Have you talked to anyone there? Have you gone to any of the stores or, or sat on anybody's front porch? I mean... Uh, to me, I think you have to you have to be open to that, like learn, learn a little bit. It's easy to lock up all these narratives and you think, you know, but like often, as I think what I'm hearing you say is that you can hold multiple narratives about uh, an organization or a system or a neighborhood. Right. Like does one neighborhood in Minneapolis have the preponderance of violent crime? The answer can be yes, but also can one neighborhood have incredible leaders and amazing students and people who persevered through incredible uh, circumstances to achieve? Like, yeah, all of those things do. Mm -hmm. So I think people have a hard time holding two truths uh, about one topic. Yeah. And I mean, you know, so we're living in a really polarized time. We've watched this play out in so many ways. Do you, think it, do you think it's worse? Is it more polarized or do you think people just have a way to like spout off about it more publicly? It feels worse to me. Yeah. It feels worse to me too, but I'm always curious if like this was always there and people just feel because they have a megaphone, like they used to just talk about it to their to their you know brother or to their neighbor, and now they kind of are able to say it everywhere. 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it, but I also think that because everything has become politicized, mm, yeah, right. Like, like we've lost the humanity, right? We we need to humanize things, huh. and yeah, um, you know, when you when you make decisions around groupthink and party lines, and you know, you either are for Black Lives Matter or you blue, you know, bleed blue. Like we, right. you know, you're either for Kaepernick or you're you you, you you're boycotting. Like there's just all these like right. extremes. Which and which side are you on? You got to line up on whatever side. You got to line up with your people, not huh. with the people, but with yeah. your people. And um, you know, maybe the campaigns of these positions are so public that that I hear more of it, but I think in day to day, like there's, you know, even in schools, Jason, like you either are for like traditional public schools or you hate charter schools, right? Like, like they get very simple. Like they're not even big, sometimes um, public debates, Hmm. right? There are ways in which you show, right? Your value. And then you judge someone else's decision yeah. That show up in everyday life without consideration. It's true. Choices in the context. Yeah. I mean, I cover restaurants as well for uh, Minnesota Monthly and for WCCO. And it's been very interesting how, you know, consumer choices, like what restaurants you go to or what products you buy, are very much uh, in a similar vein. Like you have to line up with your people. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's just, it is, it is a change. It is a change. You know, I noticed during the trial, you, you talk about the idea of people lining up with what side they're on. So when I was covering the trial, it was very interesting because normally in the social media environment, people interacting with me are people from the community. And so people know that like, I'm invested in the community I think I have a track record of listening to people from all over. Uh, I have a track record of publicly admitting when I get something wrong. And so you get a certain amount of credit, uh, a benefit of the doubt, I suppose. But when the trial was happening, coverage was all over the country and people could stream it. And so you had people, no matter, I was conscious, I made a conscious choice to not tweet like a bunch of quotes from people's testimony because I couldn't commit myself to like being equal in tweeting the people who disagreed or the cross-examination or I just didn't want to do that. So I was basically just introducing what witness we were on. But whenever you tweet anything about the Derek Chauvin trial, people will get very heated in the comments. And one example is that people were very upset that on TV, we were not calling it the murder of George Floyd, that we were calling it the death or the, um, we tried to be very careful with wording where we would say like Derek Chauvin is accused of murdering George Floyd, but we wouldn't call it the murder of George Floyd. And people were very upset about that. They're like, it's murder. I saw it. It's murder. And it it is a challenging thing as a journalist to try to explain, like, well, look, like I murder is something that the jury has to decide. This case was very, very different. And that normally there's no dispute about whether or not it's a murder. We know it's a murder. The dispute is about who did it. In this case, we knew who did it. The dispute was, was it a murder or was it a medical situation that happened? The the key issue was not the who, it was the how. And in almost every other murder case I've ever, uh, frankly, I can't even think of another, another case I've ever covered where that was the dispute. Hmm. So it was interesting when you try to explain it that way, like most people actually were pretty understanding when I said, I'm like, the, the key dispute in this case is whether or not it was a murder. So I can't call it a murder because that's, we don't know. Now, the second he was convicted, I've, and even today, I still find myself like double checking to make sure people call it the murder instead of the death because it was a murder. 
and it's important to name it as such. But you know, that's part of explaining the role of a of an independent journalist in in our society. We have a lot of journalists who are, you know, come from a particular viewpoint. And I like that too. Like, I think there's room for all of it. But yeah. for us, like we try to be, you know, unbiased is a bad term because everyone has biases. But I try to be fair. I hate that Fox News made it the their slogan because it's such a, a hot button for people. But being fair and being balanced is the goal. Like it really is. Yeah. So my, can I be unbiased? No. Can I cover a story being aware of what my biases are and be fair to people? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I hope so, so. You know, the media and, and all of the uh, fake news, <laughs> the reporting things that are not factually substantiated seems to be a growing problem. And um, I'm wondering how that might be affecting your your work or how you see it impacting the field. Um, Particularly, it seems really true with um, the pandemic and the vaccine. Yeah. Um, It's created so much confusion and we rely so much, like we scrutinize and rely on media, but how is that affecting Right. Because it feels like we're living in a place where we're like polarized. And then there's like we don't trust our systems. Like (laughs) there's just all these things at play right now. It's a really complicated time. Well, your point about not trusting systems is really fascinating. I've been thinking about it a lot that there is a general distrust of anything that's big. So like in the nonprofit world, like I work with a number of nonprofits and, you know, people are suspicious of the United Way. Mm-hmm. Because they're big and people like to give money to like their buddies on GoFundMe. And I think it's fascinating that as a society, we think like giving money through one of these like direct appeals is somehow more uh, noble than like donating to your foundation, for example. Like I I know that like if if the Minneapolis Foundation misuses money, that watchdogs are going to be able to find out about it any of these other things, you have no idea what's going to happen to the money. And maybe people don't care, but I think it's interesting that people are so distrustful of large organizations and we feel it too, right? In the media, I think there's this broader distrust of the media, but being local media, people, it's sort of like the old adage about people hate Congress, but they, if they hate Congress so much, why do they keep sending their congressperson back? Yeah. So like people hate the media, but like, they really like Frank and Amelia, like they're great. You're like, well, we are that, you know, like that's us, that's us too. It's still the media. Um, the, The misinformation, you know, there's so many different categories of this issue where you have uh, people who are intentionally like messing with the system and and trying to put out false information. Um, And in the, in the, as a journalist, like I used to worry, you know, when we first started having like viewer submitted photos, so you'd have a weather event and you get a picture and you'd look at it and be like, am I sure that's not like Photoshopped? Am I sure that like, that was the main concern. Like, are we sure we're not being bamboozled in this way? And now you're worried about not that I'm going to give out bad information, but that people or social media networks or whatever are going to elevate garbage information with a really good headline that people keep spreading and that gets elevated through an algorithm. It's just such a different, it's so beyond my level as an individual journalist now where you're like, I try to make sure our stories are up to date and factual to the best of our knowledge at this moment. Um, But it's, it's a tough issue. And when people are, this goes back to like people lining up on their side Because people, it's confirmation bias, right? Like you believe something. And so you seek out evidence to show how right you are. Right. It's like, I love being proven wrong. You're like, oh, great. Like I learned something today. But Mm -hmm. people don't like to be proven wrong. It's not a a comfortable place for most people to live. Yeah. So so social media. So we met Jasmine Stringer 
um, share the mic. Amazing. Amazing. is amazing. I just love jazz. There's just a spirit about her. There are some people that have like a magic and a sparkle and Jasmine's one of those people. And you think like Jasmine, like whatever you ask me to do, I will do. Like, and then she bring she'll bring me stuff from her farm. Like, here's some apples. You're like, Jasmine, yep. you're the nicest. She's she's the greatest. So she she shared the mic and then she's like, Well, you do this, of course, of course, Jasmine. Like, and then what is it? And then she says, <laughs> um, you know, you share you share the mic with someone, and you know, who do you want to share the mic with? And so she had folks in nonprofit and politicians, and I'm like, actually, I want someone on on TV or someone that's doing some great stuff on social media because I just don't like to be on camera and I feel like I'm trying to figure out the social media thing, right? Like what, what my feels are on this. Mm -hmm. So she's like, Oh, I got someone person. Perfect. Right. So she texts me right back. She's like, I'm texting them now. And then I, it might even have been before I got off the phone. She's like, Jason said, yes. <laughs> right. So, you know, for, for folks listening, it's like, you know, I'm on your Instagram account. Right. And right. I get to get and tell my story for the day. And I'm like, I don't actually know how to use Instagram. So you're coaching <laughs> me all day, right. More on just how to use the platform. Um, but I want to just, you know, thank you for your willingness to do that. And, you know, part of what Jasmine was doing was trying to connect people that don't know each other to, to form a relationship and to use space and to show what sponsorship and allyship looks like. And I'm wondering, um, you know, as you maybe reflected on that, was there sort of any takeaways from that total experience, not just our day, but the total yeah. experience? Well, I, I always tell, you know, whenever we're talking about issues of race or gender at work, which we talk about a lot, whether it's internal coworkers talking about just the work dynamic or talking about the larger community, I always tell people I cannot make myself any less white or any less man or any less middle-aged, right? Like this is where I'm at. I'm like, but I can extend some of the advantages that come with that to you to help elevate your story or your issue or your concern. I can, I mean, Jasmine calling it share the mic is perfect because that is, that's what I can do in my position. And I considered the whole thing just a tremendous honor that anyone would want to uh, associate with me. You're <laughs> like, this is wonderful. And so I just try to be, try to share those advantages that I think, you know, and I know like someone will be listening and they're like, well, like everything's not great for the white man today. And I would say like, I understand that, right? Like perhaps, you know, in much of the rest of the world, sort of a dynamic that's always taken place in a, in a, a field that has elements of performance to it um, are starting to extend to some of the rest of the world. The truth is like, it's been a pretty good run for the white guy, right? Like it's not been, we, we don't have a lack of opportunities. And so if we can share those, if you, you're in a position where you have some influence and you can share that, um, you should, you should, like, it's not just a nice thing to do. It's sort of an obligation. Like, and I always have felt like I have a certain element of celebrity in this community, which I don't know if it's earned or deserved or not, because you, I sort of feel like I, I just go to work. Like I go to work, my job happens to come out of a transmitter and get beamed into thousands of people's homes but I'm really just going to work. And so I get some certain notoriety or celebrity by fact. Well, it's thanks to the transmitter, really. Like, uh, so you feel like you should share that in, in a, a way that makes the community better. I think the day with you was quite uh, remarkable, actually, because you had uh, some very emotional conversations and very honest and frank conversations and um i mean you had a bit of a crazy day we did that was the day that the guy committed suicide downtown right and my son called me and said mom there was another police shooting and i'm like well what do you mean and um 
Rondo, Chief Arredondo, had texted me and said it wasn't a police shooting, it was a suicide. So I got the fact pretty quick. You had it fast, yeah. I got it really fast. But what was so emotional for me was that my son, who was at school, had heard about it so quickly. And that obviously the trauma of what had come with Philando and Jamar and, you know, Justine and George Floyd is like embedded in him to the point that he needed to talk to me right then and there. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I felt. And I got on and I just had to talk about it. And it was it was really powerful to experience that and very different to experience it sort of in real time. Because I just think that's a very, that's an experience that most people don't, what most people in this community don't experience. And so to see it through your eyes, what I know for me, it was very impactful. And it's something that I still think about when I think about these sort of, you know, there, you know, there will be another, whether it's a scare or reality. And we saw it during the trial when you had another. Yeah, Dante. I mean, to have Dante Wright in the middle of the trial mm. is just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, it yeah. was a lot, right? It's a lot. And so, but seeing the way that you had to experience that as a mom was, uh, I think, very powerful. Mm. It's just important to know as a journalist, first of all, it's important to know that my experience is very different from many of, well, from most of the people who are watching, right? So like, it's just the reality, like I put on a suit and go to an office job. You know, we we know if we've learned one thing from this idea that everyone's working from home is that everyone's not working from home. And the the, the federal government data shows at the peak of people working from home, 35% of Americans were working from home at the oh, peak. Wow. And that is a reminder that I think those of us who work in the white collar world, that most people work at factories or are custodians or work in hospitals or are first responders, paramedics or police officers or firefighters. And so when we talk about getting back to work, most people have been going to work. And so it's just one example of a way where it's like, I try to connect with people's experiences is you just try to soak it up like a sponge. So when the time comes that I need to draw on that knowledge, it's there for you. Mm -hmm. It just makes you a better person. I think if you can be empathetic and understanding and, and it doesn't mean to down, you don't downplay your own experience or your own scenario by acknowledging that other people have a very different experience than you. It's, I, I think it makes your understanding of the world a little richer, yeah. but I'm always very amazed. You know, when we talk about social media, there are a lot of negatives to it, but boy, the positives that, you know, I do a job, I get, a, I get paid for it. And there are people who are willing in a, in a constructive way to try to make our work better. And not that they're getting paid or not that they get any clout but like, if you make a mistake and people will be like, mm, I don't think that's right. Or boy, the way you frame this story is sort of like, it doesn't sit well with me. And to me, I look at that and think like, man, like how generous that people are serving as an editor for mm -hmm. free right? for the only reason that they want you know, and this is like, there are those who have different agendas, right? But most people, I will say that I, that interact with me, their agenda is that they care about the community and they want, they want to, they want it to be right, or at least as right as we can get it. And I think, um, I don't know, I never take that for granted. It's, it's pretty amazing that people have that level of trust that they're, they're willing to, it's a lot easier to just throw down your remote and say, I'm never going to watch this again. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, some of your celebrity is beyond sort of your time on television, right? Like some of it comes with these videos you do on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> where you're like showing your morning makeup routine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I've never been afraid to like uh, make a fool of myself. Um, and I think it's good for people to know, like, I am, you know, I'm a pretty regular person, right? Like I have an unusual job. I have access to people and access to activities that certainly as a kid growing up, I never thought I would experience. Um, but like, I'm still a regular, you know, I mow my lawn. I do the dishes with my wife. I have arguments with my kids. It's all the same stuff that everybody else is dealing with. And I think it's the idea of like the news anchor is like the Walter Cronkite, like up on the mountain is uh, no good. Like, I think part of when you, part of why people will give me the benefit of the doubt is that I've allowed them to get to know like a little more of the total picture of who I am. And I think people know that my heart is in the right place. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I think there's a benefit to a lot of folks. I mean, I think that's the good side of social media is that it can help people know because there's the lines between professional and personal, right? And yeah. work and home, they're, they're all blurred. They're all messed up, right? right. And so, you know, people want to know who they're in relationship with and, and you're in relationship with, with someone you're watching all the time or someone yeah. who's working on your behalf. And so I remember when I first, got into my role at um, Pillsbury United Communities. And I got on Facebook for two reasons. I had teenagers and I was trying to keep up with them. <laughs> and then the other reason was that I had kids and I wanted people that worked at the organization and around the organization to understand that I don't just do work. Hmm. Like yeah. I am actually raising kids, right? The CEO before me, Tony Wagner, his kids were grown. So he had a different level of um, obligation. I have like conferences and phone calls in the middle of the day and games and pickup times and all kinds of things that I'm negotiating that makes me not available for the thing you want me to go to right now. Or my emotions are up and down because, you know, I've got teenagers and they're, they can go crazy. So it's I need good. some grace. I need grace. This was my we grace. Need grace. That's need yes. Grace. <laughs> you, you put your finger exactly on it. Like what I'm asking our audience for sometimes is a little grace. Like if I look a little tired in the morning, maybe it's because like we had to go around about homework or we had a long heart to heart about, you know, relationships or whatever's going on at, at school. Um, you know, there, there is a work is so important to me. But like there, there's a lot, there's a lot more than just the person who sitting there, you know, telling the news stories. Right. And it's fun for me. Like for me, it's always been fun. Like I've done this, I've done social media because I uh, love talking to people. It's a great way to learn stories, but mostly like I enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, people are clever and funny and interesting and I learn things and if you can filter through the through the negativity and the garbage, it still has been an incredible tool for, I mean, some of my real life friends have come from social media. One of my best friends is someone who just sent me a Twitter DM and was like, do you want to go have lunch at Vincent? I was like, sure. <laughs> my wife is like, you're doing what? With who? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm going to go have lunch with this guy. I think he's really clever. Uh -huh. And there it is. So, I mean, it's interesting. Like it, that part of things is, is pretty cool. Yeah. So you're, you know, we got just a few minutes here, but you know, foodie. So part of why I pay attention to you too, is because I'm always trying to figure out where to go eat. If someone, <laughs> you know, I got people and they want me to pick the restaurant. I just kind of go and look where you went last. And then, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for, you know, being that for me in my life. <laughs> It's been fun. Like, I will say I was a little worried when I started covering restaurants that people would think um, like I was less serious of a news person. Like, oh, he's just like, but it's been interesting. Like, oh, I've been doing uh, food coverage now for more than 10 years. And over the 10 years, food went from being like the kind of, you know, something that people didn't really pay that much attention to, to now like it's uh, I mean, certainly over the pandemic, it's been lead story, big news for folks. Yeah. But I just am drawn to like, it's more the people that I'm drawn to in restaurants. 
like these people are the ultimate dreamers, right? Like you are, you know, you are in many places risking your house because you want to open this business that has like a three or 4% profit margin. And some people hit it and really like get rich and have a lot of success. But most people, you know, you make a living if you're lucky and you get to share a bit of your heart and your soul to your guests. And I kind of dig that. Like, it's a pretty cool thing to help to help elevate and share their stories. Yeah, I was just I was talking to David Fema at something this weekend. He said, I just love putting a piece of my heart on a plate and putting it on people's tables because they serving. Mm. Yeah, some food for for some students in Minneapolis, and and like you know, it just warmed my entire being up. Right to have him talk about it that way, I isn't guess, that a great way to talk about oh it? Oh my Dave, gosh! Yeah, because that's what it is, and it I don't is. know. I'm excited. I know David's opening a couple new restaurants right in downtown Minneapolis, which I've been asking him forever to open a bakery because his bread is so good. Um. You know, I did a story uh, a couple weeks ago out at uh, Carmel Mall, the Somali Mall, mm-hmm. um, because I felt a little bit like I've lived here for a long time. I've had Somali food, but I don't really understand it. I don't really yeah. understand it. And it turned out to be a great, it was a great story. It was really, but it's all the same in to a certain degree. Everyone who's doing this is sharing a piece of of their history of their family of their soul through like the literal thing of breaking bread with others it's pretty cool it's very cool it's very cool you know we have in our workplace and everything you have people who you know i mean it is this is it's a problem in many corporations but it's a bigger problem in minnesota where the growth in well i i used to talk to our managers about this a lot we, we don't have that many on-air jobs. And if you line up our on-air people, we probably outperform our audience, right? If you want to line up diversity in percentages, like we outperform our audience and that has always been good enough for, for, that, for them. And you know, it is a heavier lift sometimes to recruit, you know, TV jobs. It's a national marketplace. It's not, you. it's sometimes local people but you're looking all over the country and you know, I think people would just accept like, Oh, well, I didn't get any applicants. You're like, well, why, why didn't you get any applicants? Why didn't any black people want to come here? That's a bigger issue. And you're like, you know, this is a business where you take a chance on people for all different reasons, right? Like maybe you'll hire someone who's young because they have a skill set that you want. And like you figure you'll work to like polish up their on-air performance. Um, but it's hard when you only have 20 openings. And you mm-hmm. say like main anchor jobs at our station. Well, when I started, there were like five men who anchored at CCO on a weekday. And today it's just me and Frank. That's it. So there are two jobs for guys who are Monday through Friday anchors. That's it. And for women, you have Heather, Shayla, and Amelia. So you have three women. That's it. Now you could look at that and say, so you have five anchors during the week and Amelia is Asian and Shayla is black. So 40% of your anchors are uh, people of color, women of color. And you could say like, that's pretty good. But if most people, you ask most people who watch Channel 4, they would not say like, wow, you guys are really killing it when it comes to diversity. And you say like, and they would be correct, like we're not. Um, But I like that we're having, you know, some of the conversation that we're seeing in town that excites me is the idea of hiring people of color is good. But making sure that in the management ranks, you have someone that understands that life experience. You're like, well, now you're starting to get somewhere. And so I think that's going to be the next thing that we need to work a little harder on. Yeah. We've always had way more women in management. I've always worked for women. Our general manager is a woman. The head of the news department is a woman. 
those two are the most powerful people at our station. And so I've always worked for women. And a lot of our managers, almost all our producers, show producers are women. So it's a lot of women. Um, but, you know, as far as people of color, we have uh, work to do. Mm-hmm. Well, we got work to do in our state, right? In our country. And I went to the corporate directors awards event this week, right? And, um, you know, the numbers of of women of color, black women on corporate boards is, it, it should be appalling to everyone yeah. that there's yeah. not more diversity and we know diversity supports business outcomes, you know, the outcomes yes. that seeking. Yeah, it just does. Right, and you know, we're spending so much money on ESG and the diversity DEI efforts and it's not seeming to show up in, in the leadership ranks that we're talking about. And I do see movement, Kim Nelson, and sample from Navigate Forward, mm-hmm. there's been a number of, of, of women that have been working to increase the number of women on corporate boards. And I'm so pleased to be part of that that effort being groomed if yeah. you will, underneath them, um, you know, in terms of, of writing this. And, it's you know, again, the narrative matters, right? It's not that people aren't ready to serve and to contribute. Yeah. It's that they haven't been sponsored, right? to the seat 100%. at the table in the ways that people right. folks have because you support people in your network. It's and exactly, so exactly we just that. have lots of work to do. And I'm, I'm so pleased to get to do that with you in this community from our various seats, but clearly committed to, you know, getting, um, getting it right here. So. It matters. It matters. And it's, you know, we struggle to attract you know, I, I really admire like some of the work that like Houston White is doing because it's without a solid like black middle class, it's really hard for us to attract like professionals who aren't going to be like in the in the super rich, right? Which is a very good living, but it's a middle class living. It's not an upper class living. Yeah. And so if you're a, if you're a, a reporter, if you're a black reporter who's not from Minnesota, where are you going to live? Mm-hmm. So like where, you know, and Houston talks about like how he had to make a choice of abandoning the North side neighborhood where he wanted to be, or like living in a more middle-class neighborhood. Like he felt like he had to make that choice. And, you know, that's a problem. It is. I think there's a solid middle class here, black middle class. We're just distributed. Everyone's all spread out. Right. Yeah. Because everybody had to make that choice, right? Like, oh, I want good schools or I want whatever. Mm -hmm. I want a yard. I want there's pockets of people in all over the place where yeah, it's harder to find each other. Jason, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's Jason DeRussia and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoy our podcast and are looking for ways to do more or become a sponsor, please contact me. You can find my information on our website under the About section and click on Our People. Remember, it's Supac rhymes with Tupac Keenitz. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, Darlin Benjamin, and our guest host, Jason DeRussia. This is Supac Keenitz. Thanks for listening.